Man, y'all know the face, y'all know the name. Y'all tuned into the world's realest podcast, Talk HE Podcast, hosted by yours truly, Mr. It's the movie Cleas Real Talk. And I got a special guest here with me today. As you can tell, it is real therapeutic in here. It is very therapeutic in here. Vibes anonymous, vibes anonymously, just good energy. I got a special guest with me. Guest, please introduce yourself. Sure. My name is Carl Jackman. I don't have a, a bunch of things to add to my name. I, I would have thought about him if I knew, but I'm just Carl Jackman for today. So. Nah, you are bigger <laughs> than that. You've done a lot of great work in the community. You do a lot of great work with people. Um, Thank you. So if people had to, if you had to say, what do you do? Like if you had to say, what, what's, what, how would you quantify what you do? Yeah, I mean, this is the realest podcast, so I'm going to be real. Um, what I do is I feel like I'm in service to the community. I feel like my purpose here is to support and uplift black and brown folks um, to be able to help them navigate through life, through the United States, through, you know, just being able to I, I want to I feel like I'm a collaborator, a conspirator, a thought partner to black and brown folks. I mean, to the community in general, but specifically highlighting black and brown folks. Um, yeah. And just being able to, I, I want to be able to help and support and assist and empower. And I feel like that's my purpose. And that's something and, and I do with passion. And um, that's like the common theme in everything that I do. How did you fall into that? Yeah, um, I think, you know, uh, if I would think about like my origin story, I, I think it comes back to like what I was exposed to. You know, um, I grew up, um, you know, from a family who was uh, new to the United States. You know, we were on, you know, I had the block of cheese and the powdered milk and we lived in public housing. And, you know, the things that helped get me to where I am all, you know, yes, school was a factor, but it was all of those programs that existed. If it weren't for those programs that were around and, you know, so like the youth development leadership program. So, you know, starting with Aspira um, when I was in high school in Staten Island, which is like a youth development program for uh, black and brown young people, but specifically black and brown young people who come from uh, Hispanic or Latin background. Um, so, you know, those programs just exposed me, them, the New York Urban League, like all of those programs provided me with a vision and um, helped me to see things that, you know, my parents maybe saw but didn't know how to articulate or show me. So, you know, I, I want to be able to give back in that way. All of these, you know, there's numerous programs. I know I'm leaving them out, but there's so many programs that I was involved in that kept me out of trouble, that kept me out of the streets, you know, that kept me, kept my mind occupied. Um, you know, I, shit, I volunteered at a zoo, Staten Island Zoo when I was a kid. Like, you know, I did the public parks, tennis and tennis program. I was at Cromwell doing theater. Like I was in all of these different spaces. My parents didn't know some things, but what they did know is how to keep me engaged and involved in stuff that opened my world and i want to be a part of that for somebody else no that's major and i felt like for you you've definitely been that for me because i met you how long ago i met you i met you was it the 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 staten island children's museum yeah was it through were you in step c-step i was there for uau but i also wasn't step program though yeah so we had step 
students in STEP who are doing their volunteer hours at the Children's Museum. I think that was with Miss Deborah. Yeah, Miss Deborah Evans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, Deborah Evans. Yep. So we had like an informal partnership where we would allow those students to be able. So it might have been through that. It might have been through just volunteering. It might have been through Unity. I, I feel like our paths overlapped so many times, you know, and I know you did UAU too, but yeah. I guess my next question is like, how has your education helped you kind of navigate through these spaces? Because like the work that you do, especially when it comes to our people can be very challenging. Yeah. And, um, and sometimes it's a real thankless job as well. Yeah. So how has your education helped you kind of navigate through those spaces? Yeah. I mean, again, this is the realest podcast. So I'm going to be real. I think the education has helped me give grace to the populations of people that I work with. Right. When you encounter people and, you know, they're responding to you or engaging you in a certain way, the education allows me to pause and think a little bit more about the context of where this is coming from. And I think that part has allowed me to give them grace and to be able to see like, well, what's behind that? You know, is this somebody trying to be disrespectful or thankful? Or is this a person who's felt um, disappointed or, um, you know, maybe feels like they need to test me a little bit to say like, you say you care, but let's see how much you really care. I'm going to throw this at you. I'm going to say this to you. Are you still going to be there? And I think, you know, for for folks who have a mistrust, and I think a lot of times a legitimate mistrust, um, it allows me to give a little bit, it gives me a little bit more context of like where it come, uh, where they might be coming from. Yeah, that's different because I feel like for me, I, I've <laughs> also kind of aligned with that work. Uh, I don't know if I've done it intentionally, uh, but I feel like I, I I really have always done things with the interest of black and colored people um, within my best interest for the for their best interest or with them in mind. And I am at a place now that it's like I don't know if if what's the best way to put this if that is suitable only to like the things I want to do in life. Like if that's like if I don't do that, am I a sellout? So I guess my question for you is, mm-hmm. did you feel like you had to do this or did you think you were, did you feel you were called to do this work? Ooh, that's a, a heavy question. I think I was called to do this. Um, and I'll provide some context even about like where, where my focus, why my focus is here. I, I say call to this because I feel like, you know, I could have done a lot of different things. You know, I could be in a lot of different spaces and, the things that I do, I choose to do, whether for work or even in my free time volunteering, are things that speak to my heart. And um, there's something about being able to work and support people in my community that really fulfills me. And it doesn't mean I'm not anti-white. I don't hate white people. Facts. You know, like that, that has nothing to do with it. You know, I just feel like as a person who comes from a certain background and environment, I feel like I have a duty to give back and to work in those spaces and give back. It doesn't mean that I, you know, that, you know, in the many roles that I've had at working at the, the museums, working as a therapist, working different, it's not like, oh, you know, white client, white staff, like I, I'm not going to work with you. No, I, I work with you. You know, I definitely will. I'm not going to turn anybody away. But for me, 
there's something that's missing in how we are engaged culturally. There's something that's missing. You know, there's there's a real value. When I can when I worked in the school and a young black male looks at me, you know, who was who was not really excited about college admission day at our high school because he was had some struggles with academics and for him to turn to me and say, you know, Mr. I see you all the time. Did you go to college? And then I'm like, yeah, I went to college. And he's like, wow, I don't know too many people that look like me that, that, that are male that went to college. That conversation hits differently, you know? And I I didn't know that that was such a rarity, like being a black man in college. Like I never thought that that was rare. To me, I always thought that I had no choice but to go to college. Yeah. Like, I thought that we belonged there. I thought that, like, not going to college meant the end of my life. Yeah. Because go to college, get a good job, have a family, find a wife. You know, yeah, well, yeah, not yeah, not yeah. find not have a family, then find a wife. Find a wife, <laughs> find a then wife, have yeah. a family. But <laughs> I thought that that was just the, the normal progression of, of life. So for me, I didn't know, know how rare it is for black men not to be in colleges. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't don't quote me on like statistics. I mean, I I don't I don't know if black men are going to college less than like white men or Asian men, or things of that nature. But I do think some of the messaging and the the expectations and the ways that the the messages that they hear about college might be different from other communities. Even the resources, right? Like working at a school in East New York there was a lot of we put a lot of emphasis into discipline into you know things of that nature but not as much into uplifting their academic selves or um you know trying to activate that academic interest in college you know i don't necessarily think that college is the be all end all and i work for an organization that supports young people going to college but i think that you know Everybody has different academic levels, different levels of support. If you think about being a first generation person and maybe your family doesn't know what it's like to push you through college, it's like, okay, yes, go to college. That's really important. And now you're like, hey, family, I, I got the grades. I applied to the college. You know, it's $50,000 a year. And, and they're like, I don't know what to do with that. I don't know how to do that. The fact that, um, you know, students are working hard and want to get there, but there's not enough college um, advisors in the high schools. You know, I don't, I don't know what it was like at Wagner, but, you know, your college advisor at Wagner might not have been able to work with everybody at the school. You know, in most schools, like, it's, yeah, the ratio is really low, so. So, for, for just to speak to Wagner, I would say that, shout out to Ms. O'Connell, she was phenomenal, but I also had to Ms. seek O'Connell. her. Yep. Like, I had to seek her. Yeah. Um, I had to go above and beyond mm-hmm. to make sure that she was there. And I had to go above and beyond to make sure that I got the resources I needed. But that's also to a, uh, to a testament to my family, to my sister and how she was with her, um, you know, her process of going to college and going away for college. And I think that's a big point of it as well. Yeah, that's that's actually a data point that I can kind of speak to that if you have proximity of people in your life who've gone through the college process and can support you, that can lead to college feeling more accessible, college feeling like something that you can do when you have somebody who can speak about the process. You know, so I, I think, you know, I, I remember Miss O'Connell as well, too. And yeah, I, I don't think that it's, you know, that college 
counselors in the high school level don't want to do this work or even the middle school that they don't is just capacity. If the ratio is one to 253 students on average or even higher than that, you know, how many people can they see and support in their college journey, you know, between the start of the school year and, you know, when people are applying, you know, and if you don't have those additional support. So I like to say it's a community support. School is a part of it, but then also being able to have people around you, whether it's family members or mentors or neighbors who can talk you through the process is really important. And I think, you know, part of why it's passion for me and black and brown people is that I don't think there's a there's enough people or we're not accessing enough people are not we're not showing up and, and putting people on and saying, well, this is how it works. Like our parents push us and we have an idea of what it's supposed to look like, but without having the context of somebody who's been there to say, OK, yeah, that's cool. But, you know, these are some other ways around it or, you know, I, I think it's really heavy. And we also carry the, you know, what does it mean to be the first generation? What's my responsibility to my family, to my community? You know, is is my, am I only val, is my college experience only valuable if I go to become a doctor or if I go to Harvard or Yale? And if I go to Medgar, it's not valuable. So there's a lot of things that we're deconstructing. And, you know, like I said, my parents are not from this country. So for them, for them, it's like, you got to go to Harvard or Yale. They don't know about Lehigh. They don't know about Binghamton. They didn't know about these places. So for them, it's like, oh, you didn't get into Harvard or Yale? You failed, you know? Wow. And I think that, that you just spoke to a lot of first-generation immigrant, immigrant kids, uh, kids who may want to jump into things that's not traditional to no, uh, law, engineering, or healthcare. Um, so how did you find your way? Because you are not solely getting healthcare, but you're not like a doctor, even though you can be a doctor. You have the, the aptitude to do so. How did you find your way, and why did you choose the way that you chose? Yeah, I mean, my path was a nonlinear path. When I left high school, I thought I was going to be going to like business. I'm like, you know, because my dad was pushing that, right? He was like, you know, get your Series 7, get your Series 63, sell, you know, mutual funds and stocks and insurance and finance. Because for him, you know, part of his immigrant story is we came here to, you know, making money is the is the goal, right? And and, and to be able to make money and provide in, in certain ways is really important. And, you know, I, I, I went that route, you know, it didn't work out for me, not the academic part, but just the supports that I needed emotionally, socially, you know, there were things, underlying things that were there that were never addressed or that I didn't even recognize were things at the time. So, you know, when college didn't work out for me, the first time that I went, I just worked. And, you know, from those contacts that I made in those high school programs that I did, I went back to them and there, you know, somebody at the Urban League was like, oh yeah, you know, we know you from Aspira, do you want to come in and be a youth development uh, coordinator? in the Staten Island branch office. It used to be on Van Duzer Street um, in Staten Island. Um, the office is still there. The building is there, but the Urban League office is not there. And somebody believed in me. Somebody took, was like, you know, somebody saw the potential that I had in the youth programs, how I showed up as like a leader in these programs and like, hey, I'm going to support you in this and, and mentored me, you know, some really powerful black women. And you know, really, what I realized is that I enjoyed working with young people. I enjoyed supporting them on their journey. And um, 
you know, that led me to a career of youth development, you know, and through that youth development path, um, what I realized, youth development is like a larger systemic intervention, providing like access, support, exposure. But then I realized that there were other factors. There was mental health. There was intergenerational trauma. There's racial trauma. There's all of these things. And there was a part of me that was like, you know what? I want to be able to help with that. Yes, I can help in this, but I want to be able to help in a deeper level. And that's what led me to going back to school, working at, I did some work at McKee High School in Staten Island for, with social workers. I'm like, this is the path. This is how I want to go. And that led me going back to school, studying social work as an undergrad, studying social work as a, as a, uh, in graduate school. And, you know, I wanted to be able to add another tool to my belt. Yes, I can talk about things and provide access, but I also wanted to be able to speak to other factors that are um, a little bit deeper and under the surface that um, can get in, interfere with young people's um, progression or success. So what are some of those things that are like those underlying factors that impact progression of young people? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we don't really talk about it. You know, I think, and I say we, I, I, I think poverty is something that impacts us, right? It, it can be a traumatic, traumatic experience. You know, I, I, I mentioned to this man earlier, you know, talking about growing up in, in public housing and like, you know, the shit was so like normal to me. I grew up at a time, you know, where I would step outside and there would be crack vials on my steps There'd be people peeing and, 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 and shitting in the, in the staircase, peeing in the elevator, like shootouts were happening in the playground. You know, if you're from the West, you know about Scotty's and, and what was happening out there. Like all of those things were happening around me. And, you know, how do those things impact how you feel about safety? How do those things impact how you feel about your future? How does those things impact what you see and what you can accomplish. So, so I'd say things like poverty. I would say things like um, just trauma, right? I mean, we all experience trauma, um, but if you have protective factors that can support you through trauma, that can give you different outcomes than if you don't have those factors. So, um, you know, yes, we have community healing, we have our faith, church, things like that, but what else can be there to help support us in being able to think about those things? Um, racism, white supremacy, like all of those things are, are factors and people trying to navigate, you know, even as a college student, when I did go to college, you know, I had a professor look at me and tell me that I wasn't going to be anything, you know? Uh, oh, I've definitely had that happen to me too. Yeah. I've had that in, in multiple parts of my journey. And, and if I didn't see it differently, a part of me could have, a, a, the former me could have been like, well, he knows he's a professor. He's smart. He's been teaching forever. If he says that I can't do this, then I can't do this, you know? And I think there's a lot of messaging that, that we get bombarded with about what we can and can't do. And it can be hard for us to affirm who we are, what we're capable of, and to kind of make it through the noise. Um, we're marginalized. You know, even, you know, you talked about earlier about, you know, this school being, a, you know, PBIs versus PWIs. It's, it can be really hard to go, you know, you grow up in a place, you know, New York City is, has its racism, but, you know, when you go to a place where, you know, there's two black people in the whole town and now you're on campus and, you know, people, people are getting hurt, people are getting killed, they're writing racist things or nooses, like, you know, it takes 
it takes something, it, it takes a lot to be able to persevere through that. And, you know, these are the factors, you know, I'd, I'd say the, the impacts of poverty, the impacts of intergenerational <laughs> historical trauma, I'll say the impact of being marginalized and, and, and dealing with racism, systemic racism at that, microaggressions, you know, all of those things are, are, are things that are factors. And, and those are things that are very specific to black and brown people. And it doesn't mean that white people can't experience some of that or all of it or whatever, but because of I've experienced it, because those are that's the lens that I bring that's different from somebody who is non-black or non-person of non-black or brown person. I can bring that perspective and hold space for that. Somebody else might be able to work with a student. They might be really nice and really cheerful and really want to help, but they don't. They might be lacking the context or not be able to sit with that. Kids go through real shit and go through things that are impacted by their ethnicity or race. So you can be a really nice white person. There's lots of really nice white people, very friendly white people, very well-meaning white people, but can you hold space for somebody's experience as a first-generation person, as an immigrant? Or does that make you uncomfortable and you try to gloss past that and focus on other things? That's real. We're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come back to Talking Cheap Podcast. We'll call Jackman. All right, we back. Um, we spoke about a lot of deep things. The last time, the last thing we spoke about, if I, if I can remember correctly, was some of the underlining uh, issues or some of the underlining things that make finding support very difficult within our community. And uh, we actually just had a conversation with a, a future mentee of yours. I, I, I would consider myself a mentee of yours as well. But um, you spoke about a lot of interesting things, especially about uh, uh, identity affir- uh, affirming um, treatment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So can you speak to a little bit of that? Because it is Mental Health Awareness Month. And yes, it is. Uh, we need to talk about mental health, especially as black men. Yeah, yeah. I think when taking it from like a like a very like entry level identity affirming care is when you have somebody who can um, speak to or connect with your experience in a way that is objective in a way that is maybe not necessarily navigating that medical providers internalized bias so like if if you know for to make it more like simple example, if somebody were to say, hey, Carl, go across the street and speak to that guy with the knit hat and the hoodie. And I'm like, I don't know. He's wearing a hoodie. You know, when I think about people with hoodies, they're, they're, he's probably he's probably out here selling drugs or maybe he's up to no good or he has like a criminal history. Like there's a lot of assumptions that come because of internalized bias. And it's another thing when you can sit with a person and they're like, oh, I'm sitting with this person with a hoodie because black men of a certain age like to wear hoodies and I'm not intimidated by that or to say, oh, he talked about this experience about doing these things. That's a normal experience. That's not pathology. And sometimes when we talk about identity affirming care, some of the things that are just things that we do culturally, that we do socially as black men, as black people, as brown people, those things can get pathologized. You know, so thinking about a really quick example, and I might get this wrong, but I remember reading about a young lady who um, I think um, was a a therapist or somebody who was working with them 
went to a funeral or, or their, somebody in their family died and this child like fell out on the ground and people like pathologize, no, pathologize that. I'll give an even better example. Scratch that. Take a step back. There was a therapist who was working with a person, a, a, a black woman, right? And during the sessions, the therapist wrote in her notes that this black woman kept patting her hair. And the therapist wrote that this must be a sign of some sort of mental pathology because this black woman was patting her head while they were in session. Those of us who have black women in their life are black women. She is scratching her head. <laughs> That's how she scratched her head. Right. Yeah. She's just scratching her head. Right. But if you're not familiar with that, you're like, oh, my God, this person is patting their head. They've pat their head. This must be some sort of neuroses and a sort you know. So just having somebody who can be like, oh, this person is patting their head. Oh, girl, you know, go ahead, do your thing. You know, I'm doing I might do that, too. I mean, I don't have any hair and I'm not a woman. But, you know, just being able to be understood and seen in that way without the things that we do that are specific to us being pathologized is the reason why identity affirming care can be important. I love it. So why is mental health important and how have you uh, went about maintaining your mental health and a good standard? Yeah, I think for me, mental health is important. Uh, I like to say that it's proactively important, not reactively important. I think that as you get your checklist to do whatever it is that you do in life, thinking about your mental health should be a part of that, part of your process. For me, it's really important because mental health for me is self, at a basic level, self-awareness. How am I doing? How am I feeling? How am I managing through things? Um, and being able to like, you know, reflect and check in on yourself and like, how is this going for me? And if there's something that's coming up that is feeling difficult or to be able to, to get through it, right? It's, it's kind of like, hey, you know, if my, my leg is hurting, I check them. If you're going to the gym and you've been going for a while and you notice that your arm is, you know, there's a weird pain in your arm, you might check in with your body and say, okay, there's something going on with my arm. I might need to go and talk to somebody and get some support around it. And I think with our mental health, it's the same way, you know, but I think because of our history, um, because of the way that we've been marginalized from mental health, you know, due to white supremacy, um, you know, they, we, 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 we've been taught to, and we've learned to just, well, you know, they're not going to service us anyway, or I'm not going to have access. So I'm just going to work through the pain. And, you know, Sometimes, you know, our parents, especially for those of us who are first generation, our parents might not have had access to the same mental health support or even rest or things like that that we have. But, you know, we, we're in a space where we have access to different tools. You know, if I was, I would say with my clients, if when I was a kid, I changed my bicycle tire by hitting it with a rock, that worked because it helped me loosen the tire to change. But is that the best tool for me to use? Now I'm big person with a job, I can afford to buy bicycle tools to change my tire. You know, I could use the rock, but now I have more options because I have a job and I can buy, you know, a couple of tools from Home Depot. You know, so I think mental health for me is important because life is stressful. Life is going to, you know, we, we, we can't avoid the stress. We can't avoid all of the things that can interfere with our quality of life. So mental health is important to be aware of how you're doing, be aware of the things that impact and activate you, and to be able to develop the tools to help you get through it. A lot of times people are like, oh, healing, and healing is like a final destination. 
I like to think of mental health and healing as learning how to stand in the rain, not being able, you know, we can't avoid the rain and we can't ever stop rain from happening, but we can develop and acquire tools that'll help us get through the rain until it stops. And sometimes in life when things are raining, we learn to avoid. So imagine if it's if I find out it's going to rain later today, I start drinking. I find out it's going to rain, I start drugging. You know, you know, substance use in in a way that's problematic. Drinking so I'm not saying there's anything wrong with if you drink or if you use you know, other substances, but I'm talking about it in a problematic way, right? If you start, if I say that it's raining, it's going to rain tomorrow and you start using substances in a problematic way, yes, that distracts you from the fact that it's raining, but it doesn't help you to be able to get through the rain, to go to where you need to go. And mental health is really helping us to be able to develop tools to sit in the rain. So somebody else might just feel really anxious and worried and like never leave their house. Well, if I never leave my house, then I don't ever have to deal with rain. Somebody else might say, well, what if it rains? Then I might get carried, I might get swept away in the rain and my clothes are going to be ruined and the buses are going to be late and mental, you know, those are different ways in which we learn how to cope and manage with the rain or the stressors that are in our life. Mental health, for me, is a perspective to be able to say, okay, rain is happening. We can't avoid the rain. What are the tools that are going to help us to be able to get through the rain? And once you use those tools a few times, the rain doesn't seem as scary as it was before. It's like, oh, it's raining. No big deal. I, I put on my boots. I throw on my hoodie or I grab my umbrella or I call my Uber and, you know, it's not a big deal. So mental health, being able to develop our mental health provides us with the tools to get through the stress or the rain. And the more that we do that, it allows us to be able to do the, to, to have less of an impact of kind of taking away from our ability to participate and engage and enjoy life because, you know, we're, we're avoiding or distracting from these things that are stressors. No, understandable. Um, for me, mental health has been a challenge as well because I'm young us, yeah. and I'm just trying to figure it out exactly. and I'm trying to get it. And I feel like when you're young and you're trying to get it, what tends to happen is like you just chase you just chasing it so hard that you sometimes neglect the fact that you got to take care of yourself. Yeah, facts. So when you were my age, how did you deal with your mental health, and what were some of the things that you had to address to get to the point of where you are now? Yeah, I'll I'll say this: Um, you're ahead of me because when I was your age, I probably wasn't taking, I wasn't thinking about my mental health in the ways that I do now, you know, when I was your age and, 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 I'm, and I'm saying that, you know, there's not a huge difference, but you know, it's not like 50 years. <laughs> Just yeah. You ain't, you ain't, you ain't 80. You no, ain't I'm not 80. 80. No, but you know, I think I was, the messages that I heard was, you know, there was a lot of, before we even had this term of hustle or grind culture, that was a thing, right? Like, you know, you don't sleep. You know, there was a line in the Nas song, right? You don't, I don't sleep because sleep is the cousin of death. Like there was this, you know, people glorifying like being on the block for days in the same clothes. Like it was this message of, you know, you can't rest. You can't, you know, take care of yourself because you will miss out. And, you know, I wasn't thinking about that. So I worked multiple jobs. I've always, you know, I've always worked more than one job at a time. But there was a time where I was working a day job from nine to five and then working an overnight job from 10 at night to seven in the morning because I felt like this is what I need to do to get where I need to be. 
And you can have that mentality until your body collapses, right? And that you, 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 den- you deny yourself sleep, you deny yourself rest, and now you're like, oh, I've been grinding, and then, you're bo- then you fall asleep. On the, for me, I'm throwing up on the ferry, falling asleep, you standing up. Like, you know, it, I think there's a romanticized ideal of this hustle and grind culture. Um, you know, I, I don't say that you shouldn't work hard. I think it's important to work hard. I think that it's very important. But I, I like to lift up, even with my clients, this idea of duality. You can do multiple things can be true at the same time. You can work really hard and also find time to take care of yourself. You can work really hard on a goal and also carve out 30 minutes for yourself to do nothing. You can also carve work really hard and uh, plan a Saturday where you're just hanging out with your people or going to the park or walking your dog or hanging out with your partner or whatever it is. And I think a lot of times when we think about working hard, we take that off the table. We're like, I got to grind. But what you're not including as you're, over, as you're scheduling yourself is time to hang with your people, hang with your family, be to yourself, you know. Um, and I think now what I realize is I like to check in. My partner is somebody who keeps me accountable um, in that way. So, you know, for me, it's like I like to get once I get going and I'm working, I could work until I can't work anymore. Right. So I might start really early in the morning and now it's like 10, 11, 12 o'clock and I'm still going. And my partner is really good at being like, hey, 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 like, you know, you <laughs> you haven't eaten lunch. You haven't eaten dinner. You haven't stopped. And, you know, I, I, I think about it, you know, just with recent events and people that I've known that have passed, like if if I were not to make it tomorrow, like what would I want to have been my experience of life? You know, do I want to my, my whole 30s or 40s? I haven't hit the 50s yet, y'all. But, you know, do I want to if, if 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 the doctor told me tomorrow, like, hey, Carl, you got six months left. How would I want to spend that six months grinding and working? You know, yes, I want to work hard, but I also want to make sure that I have really meaningful experiences. So what it looks like now is me taking vacation, using my PTO, um, sometimes clearing some of my schedule on a Friday, um, scheduling time with my friends. Because, you know, my friends I grew up with, people got kids, people got jobs and say, hey, y'all, like we need to just chill. And sometimes, you know, dudes, you know, we're like, nah, I'm focused. I can't, you know, I got kids. I can't rest. And, you know, I got to like we have this thing like in order for my kids to 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 in order for me to do the things that are going to help my kids, I have to take self-sacrifice rest. I have to sacrifice social time. And, you know, I don't know the statistics on it, but I think about as men, as we get older, our social lives change. Not all of us. But for a lot of us, it, it's like, you know, what? I just got to be this family person. I got to work. I got to provide. And that's it. And I don't invest in myself in any other way. So for me, I challenge that, you know, for myself. It's like, you know what? You know, I want to there's things that I want to do and whatever it is that it is for you. You know, for some people, it's like I'm going to make time to play some ball. You know, I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to talk to my friends. Um, you know, I'm going to take vacation. I'm going to treat myself to, you know, dinner or something like that. I think th- those are the things that I do now, you know, that are really important for me. I work hard. I still work more than one job. That hasn't changed. But I also think about, you know, my bandwidth. I think about, you know, how I want to feel. 
So, you know, I, all of those, I, I, I consider all of those things, you know, and I'm still a work in progress with that. No, I think it's beautifully said what you said, and I feel that completely. Um, so I guess my last question, because I know you have things to do soon, um, what is the next step for you in your process, and what makes you, what brings you joy and peace now at, at your point in your life? Yeah, I think the next step for me is just continuing to evolve. I think that at different points in my life, I was like, this is it. Once I get here, this is going to be it. It was, you know, for me, there was a point where I was like, I'm going to be a school social worker and that's going to be it forever. And then I became a school social worker and I'm like, this is cool, but I don't know. I think there's something else out there for me. And then I went into my current, you know, full-time position, which is, you know, working with uh, college, high school students and supporting them, filling the gaps of some of the mental health support. And, I'm, you know, like I realize that that's not it. It's where I am now and I'm cultivating and creating and building something that I think is going to be beautiful. But I think for me, it's always thinking about what's the next level and what kind of draws me. And I think what will draw me um, in the future is just being able to create spaces that center wellness specifically for black and brown folks, but from a community perspective, um, from even from, you know, talking about being male as, as part of my identity, I want to be able to show up in spaces and talk about black mental, black mental health as black males, you know, cause that's my, my identity. Um, um, specifically, you know, around heterosexual cisgendered black males, I think you know, that our conversations about mental health are a little wonky. I mean, they, they, they happen, but I think that there's so much more that we can do. You know, when I think about black males and even or even males that are in my life, you know, it's very rare that we can be vulnerable with each other. You know, I, I might see you and say, how are you doing? And you're like, I'm good. But really, you might really be struggling but you don't feel like it's okay for you to be like, yo, Carl, you know, this week is really tough. And if we're struggling, uh, I'm struggling. You, you might feel, and I'm not saying you, <laughs> just as an example, but like that can be really hard for us to say to another male and say like, yeah, man, I'm, I'm really struggling. This week kicked my ass. And without people feeling, you know, sometimes it's like, well, you know, is he going to think that I'm soft? Is he going to think that I'm, you know, whatever the, the thing is. Yeah. But I, I, I want to be able to create a space where we can be transparent, where we can be vulnerable with each other. And those are healing spaces, you know, to talk about how when we feel hurt, when we feel disappointed, maybe even shed some tears because tears are OK. You know, like I want to be able to cultivate those things. I think those things would be I want to be able to shift the perspectives that we have. And I, you know, I think, like I said, duality, you can be, you know, uh, uh, a masculine man and whatever that means to you and also be sensitive. Like you don't have to be all of one or all of the other. And I want to be able to create spaces for black and brown people, but specifically for black men to be able to sit in all of that, sit in our power, sit in our vulnerability, sit in, in things that are feeling raw um, and, and normalize that and support each other. That's, that's, I, I feel like where, that's where I'm going in the future. I see that happening with kids, with young people. I see that happening with people my age and older. Um, yeah, you know, it's like it's like being in war and never getting it and never, you know, it's like your grandfather, great-grandfather who was in the war and comes back and never talks about it, but just is like emotionally unavailable and jaded and just like, I don't want to keep passing that down. 
You know, I, I think I want to pass down this emotional intelligence. And the thing is, we say like, oh, you know, we, we can't, we got to be strong. We got to do this. We're dealing with our mental health, not all of us, but some of us are trying to drink it away, smoke it away, you know, thug it away, you know, or gangster it away. Like we're doing all of that, but really all of, that's that's pain. I love music. I love drill music, you know, even that. And, and what I hear in that is also pain. You know, I'm doing these things because of how these things in the environment are impacting me. And um, yeah, I want us to be able, yes, express it in those ways and be able to explore it. But can we do it in ways that are also vulnerable? Um, so yeah. No, I think what you said is very impactful and important, and I think um, a lot of men could resonate with what you're saying. Um, and I'll, I'll say this real quick before we wrap up. I'm very much grateful for you. I'm grateful for what you do and the work that you do. Um, there is a not-for-profit that I have called Bros Brothers Rising Over Stigmas that I think mm-hmm. you'll be perfect for, and. Um, Creating safe spaces for us to speak and be unapologetically black men is something mm-hmm. I think needs to happen, especially when it comes to our black male masculinity and our maleness. Um, I think that's really important. So kudos to you for being able to see that. And people want to follow you, connect with you. Where can they go to do so? Yeah, I'm, I'm really not that great with the socials, but I'm on LinkedIn um, under Carl Jackman, LMSW. Um, not really on Instagram, but um, LinkedIn is probably the best way. I, I promise I'll be better. I'll, I'm evolved into the 21st century. Um, but yeah, that's the best way to find me like professionally. Um, yeah. Awesome. All right, well, you're tuning in to Talk Ain't Cheap, and I know the slogan's not that deep. It's a vibe. If y'all enjoy Talk Ain't Cheap, like I said, follow the brands, Talk Ain't Cheap Network, the Cletus Group, and uh, Immaculate Scent because the candles is the scent smell of the vibes and uh, we have to love ourselves and that's how we do it but like I said you're tuned to Talk Ain't Cheap it's not that deep it's a vibe